be on page 1191. Uh, my name is Steve Frederick. For those uh, who perhaps haven't met me before, um, it's really great to have you with us. Uh, and it'll be handy to have that passage open as we work through it uh, together this evening. We're our second week uh, in looking at Paul's letter to the apostle, oh, sorry, to the, um, to the bishop, Timothy. Uh, in Shakespeare's play Hamlet, one of the key characters, Ophelia, uh, there's this moment where she was recounting to her father how Hamlet, the title character, has declared his great love for her with all the holy vows of heaven, put out all the stops to declare just how genuine and intense his love for her is. Ophelia's father, on the other hand, is a good deal more sceptical, questioning about the genuineness of Hamlet's love for his daughter. Polonius warns his daughter, Ophelia, that perhaps Hamlet's love for her blazes with more light than heat. That is, perhaps consists more in outward passionate appearance than in genuine, long-lived substance. The Apostle Paul could have said pretty much the same kind of statement about those who were the church leaders, set themselves up as church leaders in the city of Ephesus. Their ardent devotion to various myths and genealogies and twisted uses of the Jewish law superficially seemed to blaze with spiritual zeal and passion. But it produced no genuine heat, no genuine love, Paul said at the start of chapter 1 from last week. All it produced was really just meaningless talk, pointless speculations, all light, no heat. One of the remarkable things about this letter, as Paul is writing to Timothy, is that these toxic Ephesian church leaders, Paul says, he can see even a reflection of himself at one time in who these leaders themselves now are. He looks at them and he sees something of his own past. Ha have a look with me at those opening verses that Julianne read for us. Uh, we're going to kick off or pick up the letter again from chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. Paul, speaking about his own past, says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Like those who were wanting to set themselves up as self-styled leaders in the Ephesian churches, Paul himself had also once displayed complete ignorance and unbelief about the things that he so boldly and confidently declared, about how God could be seen genuinely at work in the world. Paul himself, he says, had once been a blasphemer, imagining that God's work in the world depended upon him zealously and sometimes violently enforcing outward spiritual conformity of others in line with his own convictions and passions. No doubt you're familiar with Paul's history, how he persecuted the early church, 
how he arrested many early church believers, how the Lord Jesus himself had to turn up and say, Paul, why are you persecuting me for him to stop? Paul's blazing spiritual passion and zeal was all light and no genuine heat. It had nothing of God in it. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of that story of Cain and Abel right back at the start of the scriptures in the book of Genesis. You might remember Cain, who gave his offering to God, whose offering wasn't received from God, simply because he was really only in it for the recognition that he expected his offering would get for him. Friends, often what we imagine to be our greatest acts, our greatest sacrifices, our greatest expressions of passion and zeal and devotion to God can be perhaps even devoid of anything that actually truly honours him. That was true of the Apostle Paul, he says, at one time. It's true of these wannabe Ephesian church leaders that Paul is warning Timothy about in this letter. Yet even Paul's zealous opposition to God's work in Jesus could become the perfect opportunity for God to display exactly how he does work in the world. Have a look with me at how things turn around in verse 14. Uh, We read this just a moment ago, but I'll continue on from verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Notice how Paul's one-time extraordinary extraordinary blasphemy, even violence, so-called in the name of God, is met not with God's own retaliatory power and violence in return, it's instead met with a display of God's immense patience. Remarkable, isn't it? In response to the most brazen blasphemy, God's response in return is not immense power and retaliation, but immense patience. Paul's own self-destructive spiritual zeal and passion was so great that he could have labelled himself the worst of all sinners. Yet to him and through him, God chooses to display his immense mercy as an example of the kind of salvation that's on offer to all other lesser sinners, in comparison with Paul at least. At the heart of the way in which God interacts with and deals with our world, Paul says, is this one saying that he says is really worthy of great attention, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What kind of shape does that salvation take? Salvation is one of those words that we often skate over, just kind of assuming that we've got it under our belt in terms of what it means, what's included in it. But what exactly is this salvation that Jesus came into the world to to provide sinners? Uh, We get little glimpses throughout the whole letter of 1 Timothy and we'll see this picture of salvation deepen and 
grow to greater complexity and beauty as we work our way through. But right back at the start of the letter, Jesus is described as the source of all believers' hope. Hope always refers to that which yet awaits to be delivered for us in the future. What might that be? Well, the aspect of salvation that's on Paul's mind initially at this point is pointed out for us there in verse 16. Jesus is the one who is described as the giver of eternal life, the one who shares his resurrected life with those who believe in him, who trust in him. If we want to see the clearest, most potent expression of God's working and acting in this world, we'll see it not in his ability to retaliate against those who oppose him, but in his immense patience in dealing mercifully towards them, offering those who don't deserve even the slightest hint of mercy, the most remarkable mercy you could imagine. Uh, We typically admire activists amongst us, don't we? And for good reason. We admire those who take action, get things done. We tend to be a little bit impatient with patience. I'm certainly impatient with patience. Uh, So this little thing I noticed about myself when I used to have to catch buses a lot of the time to go to work and to go to school, I would much rather, if I get to a bus stop, just walk ahead to the next bus stop hoping I didn't miss a bus in between, than actually just stand patiently and wait for the bus to come. I got no advantage, really, of walking ahead to the other one other than that I was just edgy, standing still, waiting, being patient for the bus to turn up, usually exactly when it said it was going to. We often are impatient with patience. So exactly what does God-shaped patience look like? What does God-like patience not look like? I know that probably for some of us, if you whip out the word patience and start speaking about patience, we might be tempted to wonder if it's just kind of a a spiritualized way of speaking about being passive, you know, propping up the status quo, comforting the complacent, pandering to those who are just spiritually compromised, not truly sold out for what they say they believe in. But patience plays quite a key role in the words that Paul writes from this point on. Uh, We're going to have a look at two concrete examples of how God's immense patience towards sinners and blasphemers might concretely shape the life of the church household. Uh, Two examples that we'll glance at uh, over the remainder of the evening. The first is placed there for us in verse 18. Uh, How about you have a look down to verse 18 and I'll read from that to verse 20. Uh, I should have mentioned uh, before, as we started, that on your service sheets there's also a QR code uh, on the back. The, 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 um, the outline might help give you an idea of where we're going. If you do have questions uh, that you'd like to ask, you can do that by scanning that QR code and submitting them uh, via your phone. Uh, verse 18, though, the first of the two examples of how God's immense patience might work itself out in the life of the church. Timothy, my son... I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme." Just as Paul had once described himself as a blasphemer, 
So he describes some of those who are self-appointed leaders in the Ephesian church, spiritual influencers. He describes them also as blasphemers, as he himself had once been. That is, people who were grievously misrepresenting Jesus in such a manner that dishonoured him intolerably. Hymenaeus is one of those characters. I didn't get to write this on your service outline sheets, but if you're taking notes, you might like to jot down 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, uh, and those verses give you a little bit more detail about who this Hymenaeus was. He taught against the resurrection of the dead. He believed that perhaps it had happened in some physical sense for the Lord Jesus, but really that it seems maybe the only resurrection that believers were to experience was a kind of a spiritualized version of it. And Paul doesn't encourage Timothy to initiate patient dialogue with these false teachers that he's describing. He doesn't encourage Timothy to engage them in patient public discussion or disputation or to come to some mediating, unifying position with them, to negotiate a place for them somewhere within the church where they won't cause too much trouble. See, Paul goes on to say in this little section that it's not the job of bishops like Timothy to hold together a fracturing church at all costs. Instead, Timothy's calling is to firmly hold on to the truths of the faith without budging, to hold on to them with a clear conscience. Even if that means abandoning blasphemers like Hymenaeus and Alexander to their own devices. Timothy is to hold on to the truths that were passed on to him, first and foremost. Uh, Just about every week, it seems, there are new divisions being reported in the news that threaten to break apart the church, either here in Australia, in various states, or globally as well. And it's not uncommon to hear bishops heard insisting that their role is to patiently try and hold the church together, to mediate between the various groups that are fragmenting over various controversies and disagreements. Not so. That has never been the role of bishops, such as Timothy, to whom Paul is writing here. It's not disputing and feuding church factions that bishops are to hold onto and keep them united together. It's the truths of the Christian faith that bishops like Timothy are to hold onto without letting go. Even if that means letting go those false teachers like Hymenaeus and Alexander, handing them over to Satan in order that God himself might deal with them. Even as Hymenaeus and Alexander are left to run aground their own faith, as their faith begins to break apart apart around them, like a sinking ship breaking up on the surf, even then, God's patience can still be seen perhaps at work. Notice that unlike Leviticus, where the one who is blasphemes was to be taken outside the camp and to suffer God's judgment immediately without any recourse. Here, Paul says that he has handed over these two men to Satan in their chosen blasphemy so that God might be the one to sober them up, so that God himself might wake them up to just how far they have departed from Jesus. Uh, It's not Satan here who will teach them any lesson. Uh, Paul is just speaking about them being sent out from amongst the community of the church into the world that's under the domain of Satan. It's not Satan that's going to teach them anything. 
but they're to be set apart from the Christian community. And it's God himself who might choose to show and extend to them the same kind of patience that he once showed to Paul in his blasphemy. Yet as a bishop, Timothy is not to display the least degree of patience towards these men's faith-wrecking teaching. He's to deal with it automatically, as you might remember from last week, where he was commanded to stop that kind of teaching carrying on. But what about the rest of us? What about those of us who aren't bishops, those of us to whom Paul isn't immediately and first writing? How should God's immense patience concretely shape the genuine, zealous and passionate faith of regular believers, perhaps like us, like those that we meet with each and every week here in Summerhill Church. Let's have a look at Paul's next uh, words of direction. Chapter 2, I'll pick it up from verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Saviour. The quiet life. The quiet life. Is that what comes to mind for you when you imagine someone of genuine, zealous, passionate, sold-out, dedicated faith? The quiet life? The quiet life has an unsettling vibe of sleepy conservatism about it, doesn't it? A passive acceptance, maybe, maybe even conformity to the accepted status quo. A willingness just to kind of go with the flow rather than take any steps of initiation. But that's not at all what Paul has in mind when he speaks about praying that God might provide us with a quiet life. By quiet, Paul has in mind a life that is so justly and rightly ordered by governments and authorities that we're spared social, political turmoil and uproar. Freedom from all the kind of violent instability that makes anything beyond just surviving next to impossible. If you think about the news reports we've seen uh, out of New Ukraine over the last year or so, how on earth can you continue on any kind of stable life in the midst of that kind of chaos? It's been amazing to see what life and government and society has been able to be sustained. But it's much harder to do in the midst of turmoil and uproar, isn't it? But it's not just normal, everyday, human, social and political flourishing that is dependent upon the quiet life, the well-ordered and governed life. Paul has something more specific in mind that he's wanting us to pray about. Have a look with me at verse 3 again. Speaking about the quiet life, Paul writes, This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, Sorry, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles." Friends, as finite creatures, we can only give our undivided attention 
to a finite number of concerns and issues, one at a time. And Paul exhorts us to pray that our social and political lives would be sufficiently well-ordered and set at peace that people might have the required time and space to come to a knowledge of God's saving truth, to be able to give attention to it, to come to know and trust it and love it. The truth that in giving himself over to death on a cross, Jesus paid a ransom for all people, a ransom that purchases our release, release both from the bonds of the physical grave and death, as well as release from God's judgment upon our sin, upon our own blasphemies, upon our own turnings against him. It's worth asking, perhaps, how much that particular concern that God says is good shapes our own asking and thanking in prayer. Perhaps you could even ask the way in which it might even shape our voting. I'm not about to tell you which particular governments or parties to vote for or which particular policies, but what might it look like just for us to ask ourselves the question about what kind of economics or what kind of education policy, what kind of immigration policy or what kind of international diplomacy might order our shared lives together such that people would have the required time and space to come to a knowledge of God's saving truth in the Lord Jesus who ransoms us from our own sin and from death itself. Paul isn't calling us to a quietism here. He's calling us to pray that things would be so well ordered that there would be no obstacle to people coming to the news of Jesus' ransom for them. Whether it be a matter of protecting the internal church life from those who would shipwreck faith with their devotion to myths and genealogies and twisted teachings about the law, or whether it be a matter of seeking the social and political stability of society through humble petitions and prayer. For Paul, the ultimate goal is exactly the same either way. Whether speaking about life either inside the church or outside it, Paul's plea is that people would be unmolested and untroubled in coming to know and trust God's immense patience towards those who had no reason to expect it from him. That people would enjoy sufficient peace and quiet time and space to not only come to know of, but to also receive the grace that he has on offer, that undeserved kindness of God that comes through the Lord Jesus. Uh, at the start of the evening, I reflected on uh, Shakespeare's play Hamlet, on Hamlet's love for Ophelia that was more light than heat. That kind of light, more light rather than heat dynamic is not to be what characterises our lives as believers. Outwardly, perhaps displaying the greatest passion and zeal and dedication and boldness, but really having no genuine heat driving behind it. Paul wants church life to be less blazing passion fueled simply by zeal and eagerness and more a strong, steady, abiding heat that radiates from the knowledge of God's immense patience towards sinners displayed in the Lord Jesus. And over the rest of the letter, 
Paul is going to focus our attention time and time again on how church life should be so ordered, not simply in pursuit of the quiet life for its own sake, but so that we might be at ease in living distinctly God-attentive lives, so that we might have the space and order to hold out to each other that great, wonderful news of the gospel, that Jesus ransoms those who are oppressed by the threat of death, those who are otherwise slaves to God's coming judgment upon their sins. Good order is to be placed not in the service of our own comforts, but so that others might come to know this life-giving news uh, as we do. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we, we long to honour you in giving ourselves to you and to your service and to those around about us. And yet sometimes, Father, in our own eagerness, wrapped up in our own concerns and passions, we can leave others behind us in a bit of a wake, distracted from what is most central to your cares and concerns. Father, we praise you for the kind of God you are, that you respond to those who oppose you, not with immense power, but with immense patience. Father, we do ask that you would assist us, that we might so order our shared life together that people would never be distracted from that offer of grace and forgiveness that embodies your divine patience in your Son so that all might come to know the grace and faith and love that is poured into us through the Lord Jesus as the Apostle Paul himself once had done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.